Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuron science with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Urban Kirksey, the author of The Mutant Project, Inside the Global Race to Genetically Modify Humans. In his book, anthropologist Urban Kirksey visits the frontiers of genetics, medicine, and technology to ask whose values are guiding gene editing experiments, and what does this new era of scientific inquiry mean for the future of human species? At a conference in Hong Kong in November 2018, Dr. Er Chung-Kui, announced that he had created the first genetically modified babies, twin girls named Lulu and Nana, sending shockwaves around the world. A year later, a Chinese court sentenced Dr. He to three years in prison for illegal medical practice. As scientists elsewhere start to catch up with China's vast genetic research program, gene editing is fueling an innovation economy that threatens to widen racial and economic inequality. Fundamental questions about science, health, and social justice are at stake. Who gets uh, access to gene editing technologies? As countries loosen regulations around the globe, from the US to Indonesia, can we shape research agendas to promote ethical and fair society? Urban Kirksey takes us on a groundbreaking journey to meet the key scientists, lobbyists and entrepreneurs who are bringing cutting-edge genetic engineering tools like CRISPR to your local clinic. He also ventures beyond the scientific echo chamber, talking to disabled scholars, doctors, hackers, chronically ill patients and activists who have alternative visions of a genetically modified future for humanity. The Mutant Project empowers us to ask the right questions uncover the truth, and navigate this brave new world. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's really exciting to have you. So we would, I would like to start the interview by asking you to tell us a little bit more about yourself, so your background, your interests. Yeah, um, I'm from the United States. I was born in Florida and uh As an undergraduate, I studied biology and anthropology, and basically ever since I've been trying to sort of integrate those those two fields. So I'm interested in where nature and culture meet. And, you know, when when I was going to school in the 1990s, there was a lot of debate about nature versus nurture and about how much genes actually determine who we are as human beings. So when CRISPR came along, I decided that I wanted to do a a full book project about it, just to learn about, you know, now that we can play with genes, tinker with them, 
you know, how much can we really change about what it means to be human? Interesting. So you you mentioned that you were interested in biology and anthropology. So what is your perspective on science versus more more of a philosophy of science? Are these two fields uh, compatible? Well, I, I think they go hand in hand. You know, every biologist has a philosophical starting place. And, um, you know, a lot of theories of, of knowledge or uh, philosophies of science, you know, very much depend on experimental practices. So I, I really think that the two fields work together really well. So as we are living through these unprecedented times, I would like to ask, so how has the pandemic influenced you and your work? Well, I'm actually doing a new project all about uh, the emergence of the, the uh, coronavirus, so SARS-CoV-2. And um, so this is very much uh, something I think about all the time, even as my own life has been disrupted, as many of our lives have been. Um, you know, I finished the, the Mutant Project, the current book, uh, I think it was March 13th when I handed in the final manuscript. So basically as the world was going into lockdown, um, so it's, it's actually been a great chance to kind of step away from other commitments. I had a busy travel schedule that got canceled. Um, so I've had a lot of time to do reading and recalibrating and, and thinking about, um, you know, some, some new questions. I'm glad to hear that there's this, a bit of a silver lining to all of this, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. So uh, how did you get interested in studying anthropology? How did it come about? Uh, it was really a, a good teacher. You know, I didn't know much about un- uh, anthropology when I was an undergraduate student, um, but I enrolled in a, a course. I, I'd at that point already done an expended, extended period of time in Indonesia. So I'd been living um, with a, uh, a cultural icon of Indonesia, a rock star who is also a, a, a painter. His name is Sam Bimbo. And I was, you know, curious in learning a little bit about, you know, culture and, and the study of, of people and other places. So I enrolled in the course and um, the person who taught it is named Maria Vespiri, um, someone who did her PhD at Princeton under Clifford Geertz. And um, yeah, I just became captured by uh, the really rich set of theoretical and philosophical questions that anthropology lets you ask. Interesting. Um, so actually, many of, of our guests, academic guests, really stress the importance of mentors. So do you think that the mentors have played a role in your uh, career journey? Yeah, for sure. You know, and after um, I, I did my undergraduate with uh, Maria Vespiri at New College of Florida, um, later on, I, I went on to earn a PhD at University of California, Santa Cruz, where I worked with James Clifford and Donna Haraway. And, and the last chapter of this book is sort of a homecoming. I'm sort of dwelling in Donna's ideas um, to make sense of, of, of CRISPR and gene editing and possible futures for humanity. And as you tackle these quite incompatible, some might say, fields, essentially the philosophy and uh, really, really technical science, do you have any um, useful tips for our early career academic listeners on how they can proceed with uh, finding out new things and uh, venturing into these uh, um, areas that have not been uh, looked at? 
Well, my advice is dive in deep, you know, to, to learn uh, for a previous book about tropical ecology. I enrolled in a, a field course from the Organization of Tropical Studies. So even though I already had a PhD, I went back and did graduate coursework. Um, and again, for this CRISPR project, I enrolled in, in a, a course at the National Institutes of Health. I, I took a week-long course oriented towards scientists and molecular biologists on, on how to use CRISPR. So a lot of my method has just been to, you know, get in inside deep and inside fields. You know, there's only so much you can learn in a week, but, you know, bringing my previous training in biology and, um, yeah, my curiosity as, as an anthropologist, someone who, you know, goes out in the world and asks people questions. I, I think, you know, spending the time to really learn a new field is, is so important. Has this complexity ever scared you? Um, I, I think actually the opposite. I, I think I, I get mm -hmm. uh, uh, bored when I'm, you know, too much within my comfort zone. You know, there's there's uh, a way that, you know, if you become too specialized, you can basically be working on the same problem for 30 years. And I, I find, you know, in some ways I still am working on problems that are at play in these different sites. One of the key uh, ideas that I follow to multiple sites in my different book projects is the idea of hope. You know, I've done that in a political sense with my first book. My second book, Emerging Ecologies, was looking at hope in this time of mass extinction. And now I'm looking at the hopes that are attached to CRISPR and, and all of the bio, um, you know, sort of the, 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 biotechnology economy, the speculation that is in that space is really just animating a lot of dreams about the future. So, you know, in some ways I can take ideas that I've developed elsewhere and apply them to this project, but I, I really like to, you know, poke around in, in new fields. And, and now I'm diving deep into virology. So it's, it's a lot of fun to, you know, learn, learn these fascinated new things that other people have been working on for a long time. That's very refreshing to hear. So how did you come about writing this particular book? Well, I, I should say that I thought I was done with this book when I showed up at the, the Gene Editing Summit in Hong Kong. I was invited to speak on the ethics panel. And, um, you know, I, I showed up for the summit and uh, I had a manuscript that was pretty much done, ready to send to the publisher. And then I was in this moment of history when the world's first genetically modified babies had just been announced. And um, so I slowed down and went to mainland China to do more field work. Um, but yeah, many years before, I guess about four or five years earlier, um, a friend had invited me to the first summit. So that one didn't get as much press. It happened at the National Academies in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, at that point, we could see it coming. You know, if anyone was paying attention to CRISPR gene editing, you could see that there were people speculating that this is relatively easy to do. Someone's going to do it soon. Um, I sort of ended up at that first summit uh, kind of by accident. A friend was going and invited me to come. Um, I just finished Emerging Ecologies, so I was looking for a new book project. I was teaching at Princeton at the time. Um, and yeah, I saw all these presentations, um, not only about CRISPR, but other tools like zinc fingers and talons that have been used to do pretty much the same thing. You know, these tools go in and break the DNA double helix, producing a double-stranded break where a uh, targeted mutation happens, mutagenesis. So, so from there, I started following some of the patients that participated in um, the early clinical trials with gene editing, with zinc fingers in particular. 
And I, I just wanted to hear the kind of the human side of these stories as, as the biotech innovation economy was pushing these tools in new directions. I wanted to understand, you know, some of the social and cultural implications of what it means to have your DNA modified. Interesting. And uh, yes, I found the strength of, of this book is that you really watch the events unfolding in a real time, essentially what we're living through right now. So um, how would you compare the previous gene editing tools to the CRISPR? Why do you think it stands out so much and captures the imagination of both science scientists and the public? Well, in, in sort of the technical details, you know, they're really similar. Um, again, as I was just saying, they basically zinc fingers and CRISPR go into the, uh, you know, uh, the double-stranded DNA and, and produce a break, it, you know, and then both molecules rely on the imperfect cell mach repair machinery to kind of get the job wrong and to either mm -hmm. add a few letters of DNA or, or sometimes, you know, create bigger errors. Um, and, you know, I, I guess what's different is that a company called Sangamo pretty much controlled how zinc fingers were, were used. It required some fairly complicated protein engineering to design a new target. Uh, like a, a new guide RNA to, to go in um, uh, to the genome and, and pick a target to, to edit. So, so with CRISPR, it's, it's pretty cheap. You know, as most of your listeners probably know, you can you can buy a pre-designed CRISPR guide these days for $99 or even less, depending on who you're working with. Whereas zinc fingers before cost upward of $20,000, even $30,000 for, for that same um, sort of tool. So I, I think because of the accessibility, we've seen the science move a lot faster. Um, you can, you know, order these, these, you know, CRISPR endonucleases from a lot of different sources. And when you're doing, you know, the basic um, experimental work, you don't even really need to, to pay for a license to use it. You know, it's only once you start to get into the clinical applications and commercial applications that you have to pay um you know, at least when Dr. Hud did his experiment, it was the Broad Institute. Um, the patent battle is ongoing, um, but I, I think that ease of access for the scientific community led a lot of people to speculate in the stock market and elsewhere about the powerful new potential of this tool. I'm glad uh, that you mentioned mentioned this accessibility of uh, this tool, of this technology. So can we just dive, dive a little bit deeper into how it's uh, starting to democratize uh, access to the gene editing technologies for the community and whether we can sort of make an analogy uh, with the with early days of even technologies like internet, which later on got a little bit more commercialized. And nowadays, uh, the big platforms are basically, they do not own the internet, but they are, their presence is very, very big in it. So do you think the CRISPR has the potential to go that in that direction as well, where the big companies might be able to um, really monopolize or something in, the, in that direction of all of this uh, technology uh, side of it? So for the book, I, I followed some biohackers. So, so people who very much see themselves as the um, sort of computer hackers of biotechnology using some of them, some those same ideals of open source technology, of disruptive innovation, innovation that sometimes is at the boundaries of the law. You know, if you, if you look at some of the early internet pioneers, 
someone like Sean Parker, um, who basically made pirating music really easy with a, a, an app called Napster. You know, he became a Silicon Valley billionaire. He, he's currently invested in the CRISPR space. I, I focus on um, Penn Medicine, a, a very establishment lab that has partnered with Sean Parker um, to, to bring that, that idiom of, of hacking to um, cutting edge biotechnology development. The, the lab I followed is the one uh, at Penn that got the very first FDA approved gene therapy through. So that's Chemariah that now comes with a price tag of depending on what country you're in and um, you know, what insurance plan you sign up for, it costs upwards of uh, $450,000, $475,000, like nearly half a million dollars for a dose. So, you know, this new generation of biohackers see themselves, at least some of them, as the Robin Hood, kind of stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. The idea is that they're taking these powerful new tools and trying to develop their own applications, sometimes, again, in situations that are at the boundaries of the law. Um, so I met one young man named Aaron Trawick, and um, I interviewed a lot of people for this book, a lot of you know important scientists. Um, uh, what stands out from my first encounter with Aaron is that he was an hour late, <laughs> which hadn't mm. happened to me ever, ever before. I sat there in the restaurant earnestly waiting and, and he showed up and, you know, he was comparing himself to Steve Jobs and, and um, talking about, you know, his, his grand aspirations for, for using these tools. He, he showed me a Google Docs spreadsheet of what he called low-hanging fruit, genetic targets that he wanted to manipulate, not necessarily with CRISPR, but with other uh, uh, gene therapy technologies. And, um, you know, I, I followed him over the course of several months and, I saw very much uh, tensions emerging in the biohacker community between Aaron, who was trying to capitalize on, on, on the use of this tool, and others who wanted to democratize the technology, who were holding on to those ideals of you know, open source access, of not trying to profiteer, but trying to bring science to the people. Um, ultimately, none of the therapies that they were working on worked, um, sort of showing that you know, having an established lab with a bunch of postdocs and PhDs and, you know, a lot of uh, budget for reagents and supplies and all those other things, you know, it's not as easy as it seems. Um, you know, you, you could go take a course for a week like I did and come away thinking you have all kinds of new magical powers. But as, you know, anyone who does bench science knows, like, this stuff isn't so easy to get to actually, um, you know, stick in the world. Um, so, so the biohacking experiments that I followed in some ways imploded because the, the science simply wasn't there. Um, but it, it's also a, a tragic arc of a particular figure, this guy, Aaron Trawick, who had this dramatic rise where he was making these, these public claims. He said he was going to cure um, herpes and HIV and cancer by Christmas. Um, but then he was basically taken down and ridic ridiculed by his, his fellow hackers and ultimately ended up dead, um, not quite a suicide, but probably an, a drug overdose. And so, so the chapter that focuses on biohackers explores that tragic narrative of, of someone who kind of brought this, this young idealism. Um, he started out as an environmental activist and before he came to biotech, um, but really kind of 
replicated the very thing that he was trying to overthrow, which is the, the big business mentality that is push, pushing profit ahead of uh, patient health and well-being. Yes, um, quite quite tragic and uh, a very, very interesting chapter I found on that. So uh, the CRISPR itself opens up a new area of dilemmas in the legal field as well. So with regards to who owns the CRISPR itself, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? So not up on the very latest of the patent battle, but you know the, the basic story, as um, many of your listeners probably know, is that two women pioneered the use of CRISPR for, for gene editing, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, and then um, some men from Harvard and MIT, um, who shall not be named, uh, became patent trolls, to put a word on it. Um, you, I've, I've got a perspective on this. And, you know, I, I think the scientific community also has a perspective on this. You know, uh, two Nobel Prizes were awarded this year to Doudna and Charpentier, and they were not awarded to the people who filed patent claims uh, right after them. So, you know, this is a, a really big question. Who owns CRISPR and how is it going to be used and how is it going to be monetized? Um, one of the surprising things that I discovered when I was getting deep into the details of Heijan Kui's experiment that produced the twin babies, Lulu and Nana in mainland China, I found a, an invoice from the Broad Institute in Boston, um, you know, the, the people that made claims to uh, patent uh, CRISPR. Um, this was no small invoice. This was for $150,000. So, mm. you know, there's there's big money to be made. And, um, you know, in part, that invoice tells a story of international collaboration. Many people like to see Dr. Hu as a rogue, someone who is operating independently, but he was very much in, invested in this international innovation economy that was, again, pushing power and profit ahead of, you know, a, a deliberative conversation about where this technology should be headed. And yes, it also touches on uh, uh, the bigger question on how can you own some sort of biological material or biological sequences um, that the, the big uh, uh, milestone was uh, when Core uh, decided that you cannot own human uh, genome sequences, like gene sequences. But for example, for CRISPR, can you own the guide RNAs? So the guide RNAs are those uh, parts of the CRISPR complex that uh, tell where to go, the CRISPR uh, enzyme itself, and where to cut your DNA. So if there's a specific target, can the big companies patent these guide RNAs? And do you think that could also bring further inequality on, on the access of develop or even development of new um, medicines and new approaches to treat diseases, for example, genetic diseases. Yeah. So again, anyone who's worked in a lab knows that science is a collaborative enterprise and the way that rewards are structured right now in many disciplines is that, you know, the one person gets the Nobel Prize, um, mm -hmm. you know, the one lab gets the patent, and then that university makes a lot of money. And whether or not the PI sees that money is, is also another question. Um, so, so I think, you know, we could use these cases to reflect back on, on some of the more fundamental um, you know, questions about science, you know, is this the pr pursuit of truth? Is this the pursuit of knowledge? Is this the pursuit of medicine and, and goods for all of humanity? Or are these profit-driven enterprises? And, and in part, these are uh, conversations about politics and economics. Um, 
at least in the United States, decisions were made in the last 20, 30 years to sort of defund a lot of the basic research. So a lot of the research and development funds that are currently at play in the United States come from private enterprises. So big companies like Novartis that um, you know manufacture and develop these gene therapies, like the one I was talking about from Carl June's lab at uh, University of Pennsylvania, they say, you know, we have to charge these exorbitant figures um, for, for these, these treatments. Um, but we could imagine a different society where, and, and there's actually a bill before Congress right now, um, the Endless Frontier Act, which would try to um, bring the U.S. funding back to the levels it was, um, you know, to sort of compete with China. And I think that, that even the nationalistic framing of the scientific enterprise, you know, I, I subtitle of the book is the, the, um, the race to genetically uh, modify humanity. And, you know, why does it need to be a race? You know, why does it need to be a competition? Why, you know, why does one country need to best another and, and sort of an international quest for soft power? So these, these are some of the themes that I, that I explore in the book. You know, part of what motivated Dr. Ha and his experiment is that he saw that it would be a real win for China. You know, if they could do this first and do it right, um, you know, the international community would, would recognize like China has become a real uh, innovator in, in the field of biotechnology. There's very large investments, um, $20 billion in synthetic biology, the, the field that seeks to redefine life itself. And, you know, China is trying to become a world leader. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think this, this question of who gets to count as a pioneer, who counts as a pariah, is, is an important one that, that I tried to write this book around. I'm absolutely delighted that you touched upon this theme and really developed it. So I wanted to ask, uh, in your research and your, your communications with such a wide uh, plethora of uh, people at different uh, stages of their careers and their lives, so have you noticed perhaps the shift uh, towards more community-based uh, scientific enterprise uh, rather than more like a one single scientist based approach to to how we perform science for example like genomics and large proteomics experiments they are not done by a single scientist they're done by huge teams of them so do you think movement away from the prices like like a Nobel prize for a single person and towards more group based appreciations is a little bit more realistic with what we can do with a big data yeah, I think it, it could be a really interesting, um, you know, turn of events if, if we saw the Nobel Committee really reframe how these these big prizes are awarded. Um, you know, it's it's the, the the sort of the mythos of of the the lone genius is is one that um, you know is is out there in popular culture. You know, it, it, there's been some great books. A, a friend of mine wrote a book about Einstein and sort of how. Um, you know, his genius emerged amidst uh, a war. Um, you know, it was in part a story of, of the Second World War. You know, these uh, events that were happening, you know, right on top of each other in the media that produced this, this story about an exceptional individual. Not to say he wasn't an exceptional individual, but, you know, there's other stories to tell about how, you know, he made his particular breakthroughs and, you know, how someone like Doudna and Charpentier and, and of course, you know, their, their story of CRISPR, you know, they're not the first people to describe this, this, um, 
uh, complex of, of uh, endonucleases. And um, there's, there's a long history of research um, predating their, their work by, by decades. So, so yeah, again, um, rethinking about how um, credit is given, how power and profit flow through these networks, I, I think is a, a really um, important thing to think about. And that's something that, you know, with an anthropologist's eye, I try to get inside of these cultures and understand how power and, and the flows of capital were, were really shaping the future research agenda. And of course, there are people who want to look like the lone genius, aren't there? So can we then transition to talk a little bit more about specific case of her Jiangkui and what has uh, happened? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, I could I could just go right there on the lone genius if you want. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, all along the way, um, from when he was a little kid, so for starters, he grew up very poor. He grew up um, in one of China's um, impoverished uh, provinces. The house that he was born in in 1984 did not have electricity. There were no roads. Um, there were no telephones. Um, he, he came out um, with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck, and there wasn't even a midwife, not even someone with informal training. Um, but it, it was just you know a family friend who came and cut the umbilical cord and hoped for the best. Um, they didn't have time or resources to go to the hospital, which was about an hour and a half away. Um, so here's someone who very much embodies the story of the China dream. The China dream is an explicit national policy right now. Um, President Xi has called on his people to become a country of innovators. He wants to change this idea of um, made in China, something that uh, historically has implied inferior quality, maybe um, a, a copycat mode of intellectual property theft. He wants to change that into created in China as, as the new um, national motto. Um, so Dr. Ha very much embodies that. He w- excelled at school. He went from this, this rural school to a rather well-known um, uh, university in, in mainland China before pursuing a PhD uh, fully funded at Rice University in Texas. And, you know, through, through that journey, you're learning a lot of lessons. Um, you know, being an Asian American um, in a U.S. Anglophone research culture, that comes with, it, with its own set of challenges. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of mistrust between the U.S. and China right now. There's active FBI investigations that are targeting some Chinese scientists. So, you know, it was in this, this kind of awkward, uncomfortable um, relationship um, between the U.S. and China that, that he grew up, but very much he now is or was in, until um, he was eventually imprisoned and, and sentenced with three years in jail. You know, he, he saw himself as following in the, the footsteps of Watson and Crick. Um, uh, Watson visit, visited his campus in a moment that I recreate in the book, and Dr. Ha asked him if he thought when he described the DNA double helix if. He wanted to uh, think about modifying um, humans' genes, and he said, "Yes, of course. You know, and the, the aim should be to to make people better." That's what Watson um, reportedly said. Um, the president of Dr. Hu's university, after he was recruited back to mainland China with this program uh, called the Peacock Plan, that's about recruiting overseas uh, Chinese talent back to mainland China. You know, he 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 was mentored by his university. Um, president, 
who basically really wanted to produce more Nobel Prizes. Um, China has had a number of Nobel Prizes over the years. And um, basically, the university president said, you know, we don't want our faculty to be wasting time on small and consequential projects. Um, we want you to be taking risks. Um, and, you know, he, he was reading the biographies of Steptoe and Edwards, who um, made the first IVF baby, Louise Brown, um, one of whom eventually got the Nobel Prize for that. So he very much imagined himself in this, um, you know, tradition of, of geniuses, tradition of, you know, the, the person who's willing to take the risk um, to do the experiment that no one else is willing to do. Um, and by most accounts, you know, um, he was totally surprised by the reaction of, of the scientific community, um, by the reaction from, um, you know, he had support from Beijing. Um, one, one of the things that I detail in the book are all the different Communist Party officials that supported this, this venture. Um, so he was very surprised to watch all that support dry up, to watch pretty much all of his collaborators distance themselves, whether it's the international collaborators um, or, or the communist officials. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think it relates directly back to what we were just talking about, you know, this quest to be the pioneer, to be the, 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 the lone genius. And, um, you know, I, I think he took that risk and, uh, ultimately suffered the consequences when society deemed that, um, this technology was not ready to be used in the way that he used it. Yes. That's, uh, Really, really interesting, really getting an insight into the ideology and uh, the life history of uh, of the main uh, main pro or antagonist of the story. Perhaps I will lead, leave reader to decide. So uh, what exactly then happened? What was the big news in the world which was just unanticipated? Or perhaps some people anticipated it, like you already mentioned in the beginning. But what happened during that um, that conference in that hotel? So basically the news was that the world's first genetically modified babies had been born. You know, that captured the headlines. And, you know, in the moment, people were wondering, is this real? Is it a hoax? Um, you know, he announced the experiment in an unconventional way. Um, at least it appeared that way from the outside. Um, you know, instead of publishing a paper, uh, he posted videos on YouTube where he claimed that two baby girls had been born as healthy as any others, Lulu and Nana. Um, and, you know, when I got into the lab and, you know, my access um, happened after he was detained. So I never actually directly interviewed him. I, I wrote a whole book that, um, you know, as I said, there's, there's other chapters in the U.S., but a lot of it is really about him. I, I got access to internal documents from the laboratory on published data, on published papers, but also video recordings of, um, you know, him doing the participant consent with the patients. I interviewed some of the patients themselves. Um, so, so I really got a lot of detailed backstory about, about this figure. And in, in some ways, what he did was pretty simple. Um, so we have this established procedure in vitro fertilization, IVF. Um, the year he did this experiment, um, 2018, was the 40-year an anniversary of the first IVF baby, Louise Brown, um, born in Steptoe and Edwards' lab. So he took that established, mature technology, and he put CRISPR into the mix. And um, 
he did three injections um, of the CRISPR endonuclease. He did one moments after conception and then um, two more after uh, cell division had taken place. And the aim was to knock out a single gene, the receptor for CCR5. And that experiment had been done before too. Um, so when I said earlier that um, I was doing a lot of work on zinc fingers, I was basically recording the personal stories of patients who had had CCR5 knocked out in, in their somatic cells, so the c- cells in their body rather than the germline. Um, so that, that distinction is, is important. So, you know, whether you're using CRISPR or zinc fingers, if you're editing the genes of, of a fully grown human, you're talking tr- trillions of cells. I, I believe that the average human body has about 34 trillion cells. So the earlier experiment targeting CCR5 was with HIV positive patients in the United States. Um, they took out about a billion blood cells, a billion or two, give or take, and they targeted that, that gene, CCR5. Um, they tried to knock it out with zinc fingers. In some proportion of those cells, they were successful. Um, but this ended up creating a mosaic condition. Basically, um, most cells in their body had the normal genotype. You know, they had the same you know genes or DNA that they inherited um, or that they you know had at birth. Um, but you know, there's these genetically modified cells that you know, um, in theory, were resistant to HIV. At least that's what they were trying to test. Um, so there was some success in that experiment, and I, I chronicle the success and ultimately failure of, of the company behind it to cure HIV. But the idea was that if you do this at the single cell stage, that if you knock out CCR5 and all of the cells of that future person lack this receptor, that HIV simply won't be able to get into the cell. Um, and of course, it's more complicated than that. Um, there's co-receptors involved in HIV. Um, CDX4 is another way that many, not many, but there's there's one strain of HIV that can get into cells using that alternate receptor. Um, and it's also complicated because, you know, when you're doing these gene editing experiments, it's really hard to know if the change that you wanted to make is there in an embryo. Um, and, you know, is, is it going to actually have the effect that you wanted it to have? So, so in looking at the very early data, um, and this is again through lab internal records that I'm able to reconstruct this, um, they saw that one of these two embryos had, was basically um, had the desired targeted knockout in both, um, both chromosomes. Um, it wasn't the same knockout. You know, the, each, each time you roll the dice with CRISPR or roll the dice with zinc fingers, you're likely to get a very idiosyncratic mutation. So, so technically both, you know, to get a little technical here, both these embryos were heterozygotes. One had um, two disabled CCR5 genes, but disabled in different ways. And then the other um, just had targeted damage on one CCR5 gene. The other was, was, was normal. Um, so that's kind of the technical details. What, what I discovered, and you know, this is me wading through Sanger sequencing and MySeq data, like trying to consult with ex- experts to get the, the facts right. Um, but the big part of the story that wasn't reported until I published this book a few weeks ago is that the babies were not healthy at birth. Um, so Dr. Haas seriously misled the world with his videos on YouTube. 
he seriously misled the scientific community when he submitted a paper to Nature, not mentioning their health problems. Um, he misled the summit when he claimed from the stage that they were they were healthy. Um, in fact, they were born at 31 weeks, um, very premature. And one of them was still in the neonatal intensive care unit um, during the summit when the news broke. Um, so, so I learned that those videos had been pre-recorded. The idea was that once the, the babies were released from the hospital, that's when they would re- release the videos. And in the book, I, I go into the nuances of how do we interpret this? It's, it's very difficult. Um, so for starters, we don't know if they're resistant to HIV. That experiment was never done. Um, they'd taken some cord blood at birth, and the idea was to you know challenge those blood cells with the HIV virus and see if they were susceptible or resistant. Um, but amidst all the chaos, amidst um, it ba- basically, I, I learned that Dr. Ha, instead of um, diligently staying focused on the science, he was out creating new business deals. He was traveling to Beijing, to California, to this uh, medical free trade zone called Hainan, where he wanted to set up a new clinic with 100 doctors, where he was going to pioneer this, this technique and sort of teach people from around the world how to use it. So he was more concerned with that than, um, you know, getting the science right. Um, so his paper was ultimately rejected by nature. You know, he didn't intend um, to announce the experiment via YouTube. It was only announced that way because a journalist um, figured out what he had done and, and leaked the story right as the summit was opening. Um, so, so in the book, I, I try to, you know, tell a nuanced story. I, I don't sort of simply dismiss this guy as monstrous, as... Um, you know, some of the press did at the time, I try to tell his story, but I also take his ethical missteps very seriously. And, um, you know, this experiment caused harm. Um, one of the, one of the missteps he made was, uh, implanting two embryos at at the same time. You know, if he had had clinical experience, um, if he had had knowledge of reproductive medicine, he would have known that that's not good clinical practice. Um, he was doing this as a biophysicist, as um, someone who partnered with doctors, but these doctors, again, didn't really have clinical experience. So, so it's a tale of ambition. It's a tale of the biotechnology innovation economy, the tale of someone who wanted to make a famous first, um, but ultimately was told in no uncertain terms by his own government, by Chinese society, by the scientific community, that he had done something wrong. So how do you think the sequence of these events impact the public perception then of science and uh, also the ability of science fields to self-regulate? Or do they need uh, some regulatory uh, settings already straight out before we start uh, rolling out these new technologies? Yeah, so in the book, I also try to describe the very uneven regulatory frameworks that exist. A a key moment at the summit right after Dr. Hu gave his presentation was an impromptu speech by David Baltimore. David Baltimore, the Nobel laureate who led the Asilomar Conference, who um, for decades now has been working with the scientific community to self-regulate. So Baltimore got up to the podium and said, there's been a failure here. There's been a failure in self-regulation. And people who followed this story know that many, many scientists were across the details. Um, Jennifer Doudna had met Dr. Ha a number of times. She didn't know the details 
of his clinical experiment, but knew about his preclinical data, knew that he was sort of talking about embryo editing experiments. A number of other scientists, and including his PhD um, advisor from Stanford, or sorry, from uh, Rice, they were very much part of planning this. Um, Michael Deem from Rice was actually in the room in Shenzhen, China, when the patients were brought in and they participated in the participant consent process. So I, I think, you know, by punishing one person, um, actually three. So Dr. Ha was punished in two of his um, Chinese collaborators in mainland China. But the lack of um, any sort of formal sanction to Michael Deem, um, a collaborator of his um, at, at uh, Rice, and also um, Stephen Quake at Stanford, um, who was his postdoc advisor, very much across many of the details of this experiment, you know, I, I think that shows that the scientific community has not regulated itself and there needs to be further regu- regulation. Um, the, as I said a few moments ago, the, the landscape is very uneven. You know, some, some countries have very clear laws prohibiting this. Um, some countries have, you know, very little um, legislation that's relevant to this kind of thing. And, um, you know, others are permissive. And uh, I, th- I think without more concerted push from the scientific community, um, from the public at large, you know, this is, this is going to be a space where the regulations are largely shaped by the companies that are invested in the technology. So more on the bright side of the story then. So what are the lessons that we have learned from all of this? Yeah, I, I think the, one of the lessons is about how science is conducted, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. is science a profit-driven enterprise or is it the pursuit of knowledge, of truth, of things that have benefit for the public? Um, I I think Dr. Hu lost sight of what it was all about. And, you know, I think others around him have have similarly lost sight. Um, But I, I also, in the book, really tried to step back from, you know, we can learn a lot of things about this experiment gone awry. Um, but how do we use this technology? And, you know, there's some activists in the space who are opposed to any human germline genome editing. They don't want any genetically modified children in the future. You know, one, one of the strongest proponents of, of this kind of view in the United States is the Christian conservative Republican Party establishment. And I, I don't think that's the place to draw the line, at least not for me. And what I also point to in the book is a troubling history of eugenics, um, how ideas about good genes and bad genes, which is what eugenics means, um, have a long history and a history that not only resulted in death camps in Nazi Germany, but sterilization campaigns in the United States um, and many other parts of the world. So as, as we have tools for controlling, you know, how genes are expressed in future generations, who gets to decide what a good gene is and what a bad gene is? You know, in some ways, that's an entirely subjective decision. Um, there's a, a very smart article that's been published um, in Discover Magazine by uh, Sarah Katz, who's a, a deaf scholar. And she insists that CRISPR should not be, you know, pushed upon the deaf deaf community, that there shouldn't be an imperative to eliminate deafness from future generations, that that is 
an important part of human diversity. This is a subculture that um, uh, you know many people flourish in and find productive, meaningful roles in society. And you know, I, I explore in the book um, other ways that this technology not just has medical risks, but social risks. Um, you know, the idea of black is beautiful, is influential, but we also live in a society where you're more likely to be subjected to police violence and brutality and arrest and even murder if you have darker skin. So if we're able to change the genes for eye color and skin color, you know, where, where should we draw the, 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 the rules for the road there? And this is something with no easy answer. You know, we need input from um, communities of color that have been targeted with, with policing. Um, you know, this is not something we can trust to the free market. You know, the, the, the hospital that gave Dr. Ha ethics permission for this experiment runs a plastic surgery clinic. And in this clinic, like many other clinics um, in East Asia, you can get skin lightening treatments. You can get Asian eyelid removal surgery. So if this is the cultural milieu, if this is the the clinical background of practitioners that are starting to use this, if this is, um, you know, if we have hospital administrators who are, again, more about making a profit than sort of helping humanity, I could really see this this kind of tool um, being used in ways that um, are, are going to be a detriment to human diversity. So I, I think there's an opportunity to rethink what it means to be human. And this is what I try to do in the last chapter of the book. Um, again, I'm not trying to draw a line and say, you know, any kind of use of of CRISPR to modify embryos is abominable. I, I think there's some interesting creative uses. And, and I actually think that science fiction is a really good guide. So if, if you turn to, to writers like um, Octavia Butler, um, the Xenogenesis series, um, yeah, you can, you can see some really imaginative ideas, you know? Um, and, you know, some of these biohackers I also encountered had some unusual ideas too. Um, you know, some some had um, potentially eugenic ideas, right? So in this this database that they shared with me of so-called low-hanging fruit that they would like to target with their genetic experiments, the gene for blue eyes was on there. Um, but they also had another gene um, that would lead to tetrachromacy, this ability to see millions of new colors. And, you know, why limit ourselves to the current visible spectrum that humans have, you know, why not, you know, develop new abilities to sense the infrared, there might be risks, you know, our brains aren't particularly necessarily wired for that kind of input, but I I could see a new future of wonder where it's not just about, you know, human health, but, and it's not about sort of enhancement for sporting events or, or militarism. You know, you could, you could also see, um, all kinds of bad science fiction, um, you know, shaping how people are thinking about these tools. And, and I go into that, you know, you could um, knock out the gene for pain and end up with um, children who don't feel, feel painful sensations. Many children are naturally born with a mutation to a number of different genes that, that mediate pain, painful sensations. But those children are prone to serious injuries and, you um, you know, they're, uh, they have reduced life expectancy. So you could see how 
military planners might um, envision a soldier that, you know, it has enhanced capacity on the battlefield because of an inability to feel pain. But is that something we really want to engineer into future future children? Well, I'm the first in line for, for ultrasound hearing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> So I really appreciated how you shine the light in a book that irrespective of the cutting edge technology, the science itself is still done by humans. And it is subject who are the subjects to biological, cultural norms overall. So from your anthropologist perspective, then if we can change the genetic makeup of our children, should we? Yeah. And, and I, I still don't have like a simple answer for that, you know, and, and in part, it's also a question, should we just like open this up to any kind of parent to make whatever choices they want to make? So if, if you look at the state of play in the United States again, and, and I keep bringing up the U S because that's where I was born and have most cultural familiarity. Um, right now there's very little legislation. If, if you want to get, a a embryo um, tested for genetic markers of various sorts, there's really no legislative framework saying, you know, you can't test for blue eyes, you can't test for skin color, you can't test for, you know, genes with some sort of tenuous links to intelligence. You know, there's, there's a lot of companies that are in the space right now that are claiming all sorts of inappropriate things that you can tell um, the aptitude of your child to play soccer or, um, you know, make music in many ways are peddling junk science. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a question of, of how these decisions are mediated, like who gets to control these decisions. Um, so, so I think, you know, I'm all about, um, embracing new technologies and thinking creatively about possible uses but I, I, I want to hold kind of the dystopia together with my utopia, you know, mm-hmm. like the book chronicles some amazing new medical breakthroughs like that, that pricey gene therapy I told you about, um, Kim Raya from Carl June's lab, you know, that treatments like that could make chemotherapy obsolete. My, my mother went through chemotherapy and, um, you know, watching someone lose their eyebrows and lose their hair and get a, you know, brain fog, like chemo brain, it's a horrible thing to go through. So, you know, if we've got tools to take that kind of suffering out of humanity, I think they're important to use, but it's also, you know, who gets access to those tools. I also, as an anthropologist have worked in parts of the world where modern ultrasound isn't available. I wrote my first book in the highlands of West Papua, where many children die every year of of diarrhea, where cholera is still rampant, where where measles, you can't can't get a a measles vaccine, even though, you know, that costs, what, like 50 cents to manufacture and distribute. So, you know, in this world of profound medical inequity, can we responsibly use these technologies and entrust, you know, an elite to make... Um, good decisions about how they should be used. So, so I think these are incredibly complicated questions, um, questions that I think, you know, we should all start paying attention to. You know, it's easy with all that's going on in the news right now um, to lose sight of some of these bigger picture uh, issues. Um, but it's also, you know, in a pandemic, it's, it's great to uh, get away from the screen a little bit, curl up with a book and, you know, uh, investigate. Yes, for sure. 
It's really complicated questions, but it's really good that you open up it to discussion and uh, bring it out uh, to people's uh, minds to start thinking about it because we'll have to, will we? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the way that I tried to write the book is, um, you know, I, I let readers come away with their own answer to that question. Should mm-hmm. parents be allowed to genetically modify their children? I sort of try to present the facts as I see them, you know, the facts of life, uh, you know, genetics and, you know, gene editing, but also the facts of life of, of racism and eugenics and, you know, social and historical reality. Excellent. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you working on now? You already introduced us a little bit, maybe a bit more about your project. So right now I'm forming an interdisciplinary team and and writing grants to try to um, basically get at this very important question. You know, what produced the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the current pandemic? Um, So if you push and poke at a lot of the origin stories, they don't hold up. And I'm not just talking about you know, Trump's wild accusations that some rogue researchers in Wuhan manufactured a bioweapon. But I'm also talking about the stories about pangolins and bats and a wet market. So when you really push at the empirical details, each one of those stories doesn't quite hold up to critical scrutiny. The very first patients with SARS-CoV-2, the first three, in fact, didn't visit the, the Wuhan wet market. Um, there's now a paper that's just published um, from Italy finding antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 in September 2019. So the, the, the emergent story could be something totally different that we're not able to you know, clearly identify right now. So I'm, I'm just going to be digging deep. It's going to probably be a, a, a four to six year project. So in, in a few years, check back in and maybe I'll have an answer. <laughs> You're always welcome with a new book. <laughs> Great. But this sounds really, really interesting. And yes, as you said, there's just so, so much complexity overall uh, going on. So I'm sure it's going to keep you very busy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'd also like to say if anyone else out there is working on that question, I would love to collaborate. I'm, I've got a, a weekly reading group. It's the multi-species coronavirus reading group. And, and we're basically just going through the primary literature trying to answer this question, you know, what produced the emergence of, of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19? And how is it reachable? How can we reach? Uh, uh, so you can, you can uh, Google me and um, send me an email. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, my website is evankirksey.space. And the coronavirus reading group is on my university's website. So I'm at the Alfred Deakin Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Excellent. Really interesting. And where can our readers find out more about the book? Uh, you can buy it. Uh, you can. Uh, there's an audio book version. Um, there's a Kindle version, which is easier for folks if um, they live outside of the U.S. or Australia. Um, so it's available on an- Amazon, um, Australian edition, UK editions coming out in March. It's available in Korean and Russian sometime soon as well. Excellent. And do you have any last uh, messages for our audience? Uh, yeah, I- I'd say just, you know, keep doing interesting science, um, you know, and, and let's collaborate. If-, if anything I've said today um, resonates, uh, feel free to reach out on, on Twitter or Facebook. Oh, that's an excellent statement of what we discussed earlier, but more collaborative science, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much, Evan, for joining me today. That was absolutely delightful. So today we were speaking to Evan Kirksey, who is the author of The Mutant Project, Inside the Global Race to Genetically Modify Humans. Thanks so okay, much. So-
Thank you and bye. Bye.